Welcome to this new Ed Voices podcast by Education International. My name is Marc Candela and I'm your host. Today I have the honor to welcome Neil Selwyn, professor at the Faculty of Education in Monash University, Australia. Neil is recognized as a leading international researcher in the area of digital education. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. And our very own Martin Henry, research coordinator at Education International. Hi, Martin. Hi, Ma. This episode is part of a podcast series entitled Teasing the Tech, focusing on things teachers should know about the impact of education technologies on labor relations, teaching and learning, and education governance. In today's episode, we will be following the money and looking amongst all the things into the potential implications of the expanding role of education's technologies for democratic accountability and education governance. Over to you, Martin. Thanks, Ma. So, Neil, teasing the tech. We've been kicking this tech ball around for a while here at EI. And um, it's with real pleasure that we talk to you about some of the knotty issues here that, that are really causing us quite a lot to grapple with around democratic accountability and education governance. Um, I'm going to start with a, a quite a broad question and we'll focus in as we go. So to kick us off, when we look at the burgeoning edtech sector, what do you think are the quintessential drivers of profit and what impact does this have on both teachers and students. Yeah, thanks for that, Martin. I've been looking at this topic since 1995, so it doesn't feel like it's burgeoning. It feels like it's a kind of life sentence. I mean, EdTech has been around for a long time. The main driver, as always, is selling tech to schools and universities for profit. Uh, the main problem is that selling tech to schools and universities is not particularly profitable. I don't <laughs> think it ever really has been. Um, so I think one of the main outcomes of this is that we get shoddy products. We get low quality tech, low quality systems. I remember doing interviews before in the new Labour government in the UK when they had a big push for the National Grid for Learning. We were talking to a big tech company and he just said schools are the easiest customers to sell to by a margin. They never question anything and they put up with kind of substandard uh, software because they want to pay less for it. So that's that's my concern at the bottom end. I mean, and also that schools and universities are being sold tech that's often not very well suited to education uh, systems and software and devices that are developed for, for business you know powerpoint is des designed for business boardroom pitches it's not designed for kind of primary school kids being creative so that that to me is some of the main concerns it's profit driven and it's shoddy technology it's tech designed for business and actually tech that doesn't often work as it should do um, I think now you're right. It, it, we could call it burgeoning. Things have changed in the last 30 odd years that I've been around. And, and the ed tech market now is dominated by big tech actors. It's no longer very small, bespoke education companies. We've got the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts and everybody else involved. But again, I think these companies are mainly involved in education, perhaps as a loss leader. They're not making squillions of dollars from this. It might be part of a kind of total market domination you know we've got communities we've got hospitals we've got you know domestic consumers we've got business we might as well have schools as well 
back in the day, some of these companies used to talk about schools as a great place to kind of groom future consumers. You know, you get kids used to using Google at five. They'll use Google products when they're 25. And there is also an element of, you know, corporate social responsibility. It feels good to be involved in education. And, you know, lots of these companies, big tech companies do think they can make a difference and and change the world. So big tech actors are, and the other thing that's changed and makes the market burgeoning is we do see a lot of much smaller scale chances might be a word I'd use. I'm not sure if that translates to every, every country, but kind of fly by night companies that see an opportunity or a niche where they can make a little bit of money around the edges. You know, Uber has dominated the taxi market, but perhaps we can make money by being an Uber for education. And these, the operations often just kind of fold and pivot. So that's where we're going and i think the impact is that we don't have as good um technology-based education as we could be it was interesting actually that during covid there was a big market burst and a big market kind of bubble and ed tech suddenly became the thing to invest in the main market interest pivoted really quickly away from selling tech to schools to selling tech to families so there's a big hype around direct to consumer ed tech selling ed tech to the families that were doing remote learning and actually, you know, the middle-class families that were in, involved in it. And there was a real hope that that might continue after the pandemic, you know, cutting schools out and going straight to the main source of revenue. I'm not sure that's worked out very well. So we might see uh, a kind of dip in interest. So it's a burgeoning market, but it's, uh, it's never really going to be you know, a, a huge, big profitable tech market that it could be, which is perhaps why we shouldn't have profit driven motives driving what happens in it. Well, I've been teaching for just about as long, Neil. So it's with real interest that I think about the fact I went into a school system where they'd only just got over banders and now we're using tech in quite a different sort of way. It's great that you mentioned primary schools and we've also got the pantomime villain on the stage of Google who we'll come back to later amongst others. Um, I'm also interested in this uberfication strand um, I'm not looking to talk about chat GPK for the whole session, but um, clearly there are a few stalking horses in the background. Um, if we talk about the pandemic, and you've already picked up on this, um, there was an exceptional opportunity there for expanding the privatization and commercialization of education. And I think you've mentioned there the work going straight to consumer. Um, there's also a lot that happened in the higher ed sector around restructuring the scenario so that there was more focus on online provision and working out how universities could move things into a different sort of profit model. If we could fast forward 20 years, and here we're back to our pantomime villains again, what would education look like in a world where commercial actors like Amazon and Google influence policy processes and steer education agendas? What could be the potential implications for democratic accountability and education governance? Very simple yeah. question for you there, Neil. No, it's good. It's always nice to think about the future. And we talk about futures, plural. The future is unknowable. So it's best to kind of anticipate possible futures and then prepare ourselves accordingly. So, I mean, if I'm going to start going off down a particular line, it's speculative, but it also should alert us to what we should be doing now in the present to either make that future not happen or perhaps go towards more desirable futures. So it's important to think about futures, I think. And actually, it's interesting that you talked about primary as opposed to HE. I think the hype during COVID that, you know, education was going to be disrupted. Schools, that has not happened whatsoever. We've been very quick to go back to how it was before. People, everyone's been very keen just to kind of, you know, 
pretend it never happened. Higher education, on the other hand, I think is genuinely rattled. Uh, and in some ways, COVID has kind of pushed a bit, bit more. It was stuff that was already happening, but it's kind of accelerated, I think, some changes. And, and, the, and the panic around chat GT, GPT shows how spooked universities are by, by digital. So, yeah, I think changes are afoot in higher education. So the big technology, I mean, if Google and Amazon were in charge, and you could argue they already are in charge, but if they were more in charge, I think it's interesting to think about big tech. We talk about big tech. And in some ways, you know, it's just a kind of catch-all umbrella term for these big tech corporations. We talk a lot in the West about, you know, Google and Alphabet and Mega and Microsoft. You've got to remember in China, you've got huge companies like Tencent and Alibaba who are very, very powerful. And in ed tech, we've got some massive in, in countries like India, for example. So there's lots of different types of big tech. And actually, all these tech companies are competing against each other. So it's not like it's one big cabal that's acting in the same way. They are actually kind of are trying to kind of outscore each other. But there are some big tech logics, I think, to the way that these companies, these, these companies operate the way they just see the world, their mindset, and the way they go about their business in any sector, including education. And I think that I mean, there's probably four things I'd point to here. These companies fundamentally imagine that we're all individuals plugged into just this huge digital ecosystem. So we're all individual, not necessarily users or consumers, but they don't see collectives or community or, or, or kind of you know, entities like nations or regions like, like you and I would. Um, we are individuals. So that's the first thing. And you get this hyper individualization of everything. It's all about the individual being able to free to choose and make their own decisions and act like a rational choice um, agent, which isn't really how we are in the real world. Um, everything's also scalable. I mean, these big tech logic that they're obsessed with everything being scaled up. You can't just do small things at a local level. It has to be scalable. And if it's not scalable, then it's not profitable. So again, that kind of introduces this mindset that one size fits all. You know, we could have, you know, <laughs> an ed tech product that could be you know, rolled out around the world and it would be a global a global scoring the other interesting logic as well is though that it, it, everything is modular everything can be plugged into everything else you see lots of these products that can be then plugged into so it's this idea of kind of interoperability and you know we can plug a, a modular in just in time and that kind of logic works well if you're a software programmer or an, you know, a computer engineer it doesn't work so well if you're operating a school and the other big tech logic is that I, I would argue these companies are very anti-worker. They're anti-worker in their products and they're also anti-worker in their business practices. So you put all that together and you can see where it might take us in terms of education. Probably not a pretty sight, you know, hyper-individualized, everything tried to be done at scale. The idea of just changing things left, right and center as you would with a, a, a program. And, you know, anti collective solidarity and anti-everything so you look at google for example and how they're already involved in disrupting education you know the idea of nano degrees and micro credentials google have launched their own um kind of competitors to degrees if you want to be a google engineer you should not go to university you should do one of google's degree level training for google engineers you get that qualification you go to work for google and in google's mind in the future, everybody will work for Google. So that's one thing. They think they can do it by themselves. But then there's some quite interesting logics as well. I mean, Jeff Bezos, um, although he's stepped down from Amazon, he's just set up a chain of tuition-free Montessori-style um, childcare centers, which is just an odd thing to do um, in underserved communities. And you look at it, and it, on the face of it, it looks very laudable. But it's this kind of hubris that you see amongst a lot of these, these big tech bros, you know, the people in charge of them. 
wanting to do education better, looking back to how they experienced Bezos went to a Montessori school, so presumably enjoyed it, and now wants to expand it everybody else uh, and replicate what worked for him on a huge scale. And so a lot of these tech companies kind of imagine education through their own experiences of education. Um, you know, it, I, I really benefited from having a one-to-one -one tutor. And so there's this myth that one-to-one -one tutoring is the way that all education could take place. So there's all sorts of stuff floating around. And my worry is that, yes, if, if Amazon and Google were in power, more in 20 years time we'd get all those logics pushed in and all the logics that perhaps we value in public education may be pushed out and in terms of accountability and governance i mean you just got to look at how these businesses these firms these mega corporations operate in the rest of the world they've got a very odd sense of public and public good um you know their supporters would argue they think outside the box you know move fast and break things i'm sure there'd be a lot of that going on again which is not great if you're talking about you know children's life chances um, you can't really kind of fail, fail fast and fail often. Um, and also, I think a lack of caution. You know, the idea of taking risks and stopping when anything goes wrong is is a, is a mindset that we don't try to have in education. We try not to have things going wrong in the first place. So in a way, it would be bad news for education. I'm not saying we shouldn't have people thinking outside the box and there isn't room for innovation. And, you know, public education is not perfect by a long, long, long way. Um, but the whole disruptive mentality of of the big tech logic and you know having these kind of much more individualized um, ways of doing things, I think, is possibly not the way forward in education terms. You've sketched quite a, a wide landscape for us there, <clears throat> Neil. And we are going to pick up the anti-worker strand in a future series, um, a future episode within the series, I should say. Um, Jeff Bezos and his toxic masculinity um, could be reconstructed in many ways. And, and we've looked at different education systems. We've certainly been a critic of, of Bridge International Academies and the way that they've tried to roll out monocultural um, Silicon Valley approaches across Africa. And, and we could take any model of education. Um, our belief is that Free state public education should be available for all and should be the responsibility of all. And, and we don't think that offshoots are really going to get us there. So um, they're interesting models you've brought forward. Um, I, I have to say that teacher using Google in the classroom, when you could see your student editing at home and, and you could actually see it on the screen in front of you, that was quite an innovation. And it, it did help with marking and other things. So while there are massive negative sides to these companies and um, for many classroom teachers they're going to be thinking about what is it that's going on and this it's, takes us to the data well, just question. to stop you there it's funny you say that because i was interviewing a teacher about five years ago and they came up with exactly the same example we said what, what, what does tech do for you and they said it's fantastic on a Saturday night, I sit down and I watch Google Docs and I watch my students do their homework and it's fantastic because I can see who's doing it and I can see who's not doing it. In the on Monday morning, when I have to talk to the kids about the homework, and if the kids, if there's a kid who's really struggled and got a terrible mark, but I know that they were working on it on a Saturday night, the conversation is not why did you not do your homework. It's like I, I could see you were really trying and you were really struggling. And he thought that was absolutely fantastic. And and as you said, it worked for him. So our two points to him were: what the hell were you doing on a Saturday night, staying up watching your, your kids do homework live? Can you not see how the extension of work into your private life is perhaps an issue? And also surveillance. <laughs> Did the kids know you were watching? So it's really interesting. 
I'm not saying tech is terrible. We're talking to each other on Zoom. It works. But technology that works for one person is not necessarily working for another. And for every advantage, there's a flip side. So it's really interesting to kind of think of things from all these angles and perhaps think about how could we capture what was good for you and for the other teacher I was talking to in a way that didn't surveil and didn't mean that you were working on a Saturday night. So and again, I wouldn't refer to Google and Pantom, uh, Google and Amazon as pantomime villains. We can't we have to work with these big tech companies. I can't make a MacBook Air. Most governments can't make, you know, laptops. So we, it has to be a kind of collaboration. So I would, I'd hate to, we're not point, um, Bridge International, we're pretty, pretty ropey, I'll admit. But, you know, lots of these other tech companies think they're doing good. They're, they're in it for mainly the right reasons, but it's just the way they go about things is not, not perhaps sensitive. So it's really complicated. Um, and I wouldn't for a minute say that tech doesn't work. Um, but you've got to think about how it kind of changes the conditions of education. So if we're surveilling each other and working on Saturday nights and, you know, the rest of it, is that is worth having that little bit more insight into, into students? It's, tr it's tricky, isn't it? It's really, really difficult. I think you're right to ground us, Neil. And um, I do have to say that I wasn't working on a Saturday night and it was with some self-irony that I tell that story. But But I think you're right to interrogate it because actually... It's taken us along the line towards this data question. And I do agree with you that when we first started using these tools, we never thought about the level of surveillance that would be going on. And neither did the students, actually. They just thought it was a great new gizmo and we could use it in, in, in a modern way. And, and then we see that the modern isn't what we expected it to be. So if we talk about the profit motive, let's talk about corporate driven data approaches. So what are they trying to do with this data? How is data collection and research relating to students' digital lives that should respect their privacy and should meet the highest ethical standards, as well as impact on their development in a positive way, actually affecting them? And it's not just happening to them, it's also happening to teachers. So what's at stake here? And how are we able to interfere with some of these behemoths? And, 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 and they are more complex than pantomime villains. And they are in many corners of our lives from searching in the maps to finding out where, what you want to see on the internet. And, and they provide a lot of structure for us. So what are the downsides and how might we protect against them? Yeah, I mean, it's, data is the lifeblood of the technologies that we use. So we don't necessarily see the data kind of escaping, but it, everything you do online leaves a digital trace, a data trail, and that data is 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 taken up by by lots of lots of different actors. So having technology in schools inherently brings in this idea that data has been generated by what you do. It's been collected, it's been collated, it's been circulated, and student data is just one part of data within schools that's that's kind of been we need to think about and, and lots of people talk about digital technology as being extractive um, which is a really interesting way of thinking about what it takes and taking data from users is one of the the kind of big extractive logics of, of the technology that we use at the moment so in some ways everything we put online as users gets extracted you know data is scraped all the time from social media from wikipedia from google docs Everything you give to the computer will get taken somewhere else. But it also, you using technology creates data, creates system data in the background, what we might call trace data. So, And this data is used in different ways. It, the, on a base level, the data is used to improve the technology. 
which you might think is fair enough. You know, it helps these these companies improve their products to find out what's going on. That does seem fair enough, but you you also see some quite shady practices just at that very low level. There was a, a recent um, example last year in the US of a teen suicide um, counselling app, um, where you know, which was very laudable and it was you know, kind of supported by charities and everything else. The data was from that, the text from the conversations that students were, uh, the young people were having, um, was then used to develop better technology for call center workers to allow call center workers to be more empathetic. So these conversations were you, and there was a huge hoo-ha because on the one hand, the developer said, well, you know, these are the most fraught conversations you could possibly have. We can use that for good. We can use that for making slightly less fraught conversations, more, more empathetic. More, and on the other hand, ethically, there's so many problems with you using that data it, you know, in terms of informed consent, just not appropriate at all. But the tech mentality was there's a huge data set there relating to conversations. We'll use it for something else. And so there are problems there, <laughs> but data is used for lots of other reasons as well. I mean, the chat GTP you raised earlier is interesting. So, I mean, big AI systems are trained on massive training data sets that are scraped from the web. So chat GTP is trained on a whole bunch of large text corpuses, Wikipedia, Reddit, all sorts of social media conversations, which is why it's quite a, a dodgy thing to use because all it's doing is paraphrasing back those sources. So if you want to write something that's a mashup of Reddit, Wikipedia, and a few other things, then chat GTP is the thing for you. But he, he, this is, this is again, is really, really problematic. Um, in just again, in terms of informed consent. So something like Dali, which is the thing that draws pictures. If you say, draw a picture of, um, you know, Big Ben in the style of Banksy, it will do it for you. But it's doing that by reusing all a whole bunch of art that's been produced by real artists for very little money or no money. And their labor is just being reappropriated through this big training model. So lots of, you know, struggling artists are really annoyed that their work is being reused in this way. There was an indigenous language app that was released last week. Uh, and the, you know, the indigenous communities whose language it was were asking, where the hell did you get this data from? We've not given you this data. It had been scraped from somewhere on the web. Ethically, again, all sorts of problems. You know, this language does not belong to you. You developing an app that allows you to translate our languages is not really going to help us. It's going to cause us harm. So, I mean, even, these what tech industry would see as being very kind of laudable uses of scraping data i think have problems and when you've got children involved or you know students in working for, on schoolwork again you've got to argue about is that data reusable i would argue not and then the real harm is that <laughs> the use of this data for the data economy so there's a huge data brokering industry data economy Firms that sell data to third parties, normally advertisers to have more targeted advertising. And you see this a lot in schools. If adverts start popping up on apps that you're using or software that you're using, that's what's going on. And if you use something like DuckDuckGo as an alternative to Google, it will tell you how many um, sites are tracking what you're using and how many people are asking for your data. And on lots of educational apps, it's, it's dozens and dozens of companies are getting your data. So it, there's big dollars in this. Education data is 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 very lucrative. I mean, there's health data, financial data, education data. There's a lot of money in that, and and also selling to you know teen consumers, for example, very very profitable. So 
at the moment, I think it's the Wild West in schools. Most schools are not aware of this. Most teachers are not aware of this. When you choose an app, you don't suddenly think about the you know the data terms of service, and you certainly don't look and see um, where the cookies are and, and where the data has been sold to. And if schools are aware of it, they're just resigned to it. What can you do? You, you have to tick it, agree or accept or, you know, on the t- otherwise you can't use the tool. Um, I've done it with this this call on Zoom. Who knows? Where, well, I could tell you where the data is going. But, you know, it it's just part of the, the di- everyday digital ecosystem that we live in. So I don't, I'm not blaming schools or teachers for not checking this out. Um, it, it's really, really tricky. So, I mean, we can raise awareness of this. You talked about how can we interfere. Um, in some ways, GDPR, um, in Europe at least, is is proving to be a little bit of adherent to this. Um, the Nether, the Dutch government, the Netherlands government, pushed back against Google Classroom, saying it was a, a misuse of data. I thought they'd got it banned, but um, I was told last week that they just got Google to slightly change the privacy settings and, and tweak it. But we've had France recently try and do something similar with Microsoft Office products and Google products, saying it's not good enough to have these in our schools. It's So you, regulators can perhaps push back and at least force companies to have slightly kind of safer or less extractive settings when they're selling stuff to schools. But at the end of the day, it's how tech works. And if you don't give your data away, you have to pay a lot more for the product. So uh, that's the other trade-off. If you get all these free apps, um, you're paying for it with your data. So it's really tricky and schools just are not over it um, because you know none of us are really, are we? You're right, Neil. And we've actually got a course that we've made with Christina Colclough that's going to be available to all our members on Alma very soon. And we've had our research network working on it in the first instance. She talks about GDPR and she takes us through a data cycle within that course where she asks people to be really clear about how their data is being off-boarded and off-loaded to other companies without their knowledge. And, And our assumption is that senior leaders in schools, and I used to be a deputy principal, people like me have got the knowledge and know what they're doing in terms of protecting teachers' data, but both of us know that that's actually the case. They don't know where the data from Google Classroom's going, et cetera. Um, I'm gonna change gears slightly. Um, I wanna focus on the main tech companies. You've talked about ChatGTP. Um, we've also talked about Amazon and Google. You know, Are there any other companies on the horizon that we should be focusing on? Um, we've been interested in the COVID crisis and how that's changed gears. But ChatGTP, for example, has come after COVID. You know, I'm, I'm sure it was working away in the background then. There was certainly a business opportunity at the time, but the extent to which things have changed, um, I just want us to think about for a bit. Um, and Mar has found some data for us from Holon IQ that the EdTech World funding dropped by 50% last year compared to the record high seen in 2021. So that's over 20 billion of funding then. Um, so if we're returning to pre-pandemic levels, what's going on? Is it just that companies have got to a point where they've grown um, to such a point? And, and we also note that one of the big sponsors of the World Cup was an Indian ed tech company, which, you know, <laughs> just floating in the background there in guitar with all the workers' graves underneath the pitches. You know, it, it's quite a it's quite a ghoulish figure if you think about it. But um, I think for us to put this picture together for our members is quite important. Uh, and just before I finish on that, the other thing around GDPR is that Denmark said that nobody could use its data unless it was stored somewhere in Europe. 
you know, are those the sorts of solutions that we've got to dealing with this area? So you've got quite a lot to deal with there, Neil. Then we're going to wrap up this session. Um, I've got one more question for you. Well, I, I want to talk more about Amazon and Google because they do so much. They're really interesting case studies in terms of how wide their tentacles spread. But before I do that, and before I talk about the World Cup, um, yeah, the Denmark um, don't store our data. Yet. <laughs> Governments and regulators can push back like that. But the issues of privacy and data protection, and, and, and they can be solved technically. In, in, and we've seen this time and time again. So in Australia, we had a similar thing. You can only have you know, Google in schools if, it, if the data is stored in Australia. Fine. We'll put it in an Australian data center. No problem. And you can't really tell it's there. I guess it probably is there. There are data centers in Australia. Um, so, so companies can get around it that way. Privacy is often seen as something that's just needing a technical fix, you know, slightly better filters or slightly better permissions. So companies work around um, any of this kind of government pushback as they did in, in the Netherlands, for example. So you can kind of slow them down, but I don't think you can kind of completely stop stop them. And you'll see a whole bunch of kind of GDPR workarounds, I'm sure. Um, so, it, yeah, it's better than nothing, but it's not going to really solve things. I was going to mention the World Cup to you because we had the Cricket World Cup over here in Melbourne. And 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 they was the main sponsors was was by um, by Jews, B Y J U. That's the biggest egg tech company in the world. So if you're going to get worried about egg tech, have a look at them. Um, I think they started off as a freemium tutoring app, um, but they, they, you know, I think it's $22 billion, over 115 million registered students. Now they're building 500 tuition centers across 200 cities in India. So they've got big, big ambitions. And if they can afford to kind of throw money away on sponsoring the Indian cricket team and sponsoring the cricket world cup and sponsoring the, the football world cup, you can see where they're coming from. So, I mean, that's where the, the money shifted. So you're right. We've seen a kind of the bubble bursting from COVID. The venture capitalist funding's folded. All of this excitement's kind of gone. People have moved on to new things, you know, crypto or Web3, or there's always some some money to be made somewhere. For a moment, it was education. And I think, as I said earlier, education's a lousy investment. So I think these companies are actually working that, you know, COVID, the, you know, the post-COVID new normal shift to learning online is not going to happen. And the bottom has fall. The other thing is the bottom has fallen out of the home learning market as well. And why they were the markets were really spooked was because China government, Chinese government cracked down on its huge online tutoring industry. That was the big kind of that was hopefully going to it was huge before COVID and during COVID. Really, really big businesses turning over billions of dollars and they had this online cramming services and and the Chinese government for for interesting political reasons have really cracked down on that. So that has spooked markets everywhere so in a way we're back to pre kind of bubble um but that doesn't mean to say that google and amazon have gone away and these big so i don't buy, buy Jews are interesting to look at and there'll be others as well around the world and you know but if you look at what these big companies are doing it's not necessarily that they're making money from ed tech products but they 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 inhabit all of our tech use so if any tech is being used in schools amazon is there and, and i'm there in a big big way so amazon's a really interesting example um i think a colleague of mine actually ben williamson i think who's done some work for you in the past uh, along with anna hogan about um privatization and edtech he had a really interesting study on um, amazon and how they were involved in education and he, he described them as a state-like corporation that just influenced education through everything they did and it's all behind the scenes so amazon own 
one of are the biggest kind of cloud computing service company in the world. And Amazon Web Services is where they get over 60% of their operating profits from. And it's the infrastructure that just runs the internet, that just runs our digital ecosystem. So it's lots of platforms behind the scenes. It's data centers. Um, he referred to them as, as landlords. So they host everything on these, these systems and they host educational operations on these systems and they generate value by renting out these services to education. So there's this rentier capitalism, which is a really interesting way of thinking about how the profit motive works. And there's particular business logics. So the pay as you go, for example, or software as a service, plugging things in left, right and center, unbundling. This is how kind of um, services and, and businesses are run on Amazon. Um, and this is kind of how education is going. If you look at how these online um, services are set up. So Amazon is a really good example of just getting their tentacles into the infrastructure. And it's actually where the profit is to be made, not on the, the, the products, they come and go, but the infrastructure is always there. Amazon's uh, also a really good example about other full trend profits as well. So trying to push their products into the classroom, there's, there was a big push for Alexa education, Alexa in the classroom. And that just is falling flat, thank goodness. But you can see the logics there. And the other really interesting example that I always used to look at was... um. There's been a trend for encouraging teachers to take their resources, their PowerPoint slides, their lesson plans, and flog them to other teachers, sell them on you know, teachers pay teachers, you might have seen. So I can put my lesson plans up and say for $10, you can have a lesson plan on, you know, whatever it is. Um, Amazon had this thing called Amazon Ignite, which was a marketplace for just this, a platform to put teachers in contact with other They described it as connecting educational content creators with Amazon customers really um, problematic on all sorts of different levels just in terms of you know anyway i looked at it um a couple of weeks ago and it had folded it folded two weeks ago <laughs> so that's the other thing about all these companies they pivot they they stop things they they you know they, they try these the great big things and then they just pull them at the last so there is this kind of like move fast and break things but in the background google classroom and all the google products amazon web services they're all there and they're all making shed loads of money from it so in some ways, don't be distracted by the froth of the venture capitalist market and, you know, these kind of fly-by-night companies. Look what's going on behind the scenes. And there you've got your big tech behemoths still going. Microsoft, for example, have been going since you and I started in education. And they'll be going when we finish. But we never talk about them, do we? They're boring. But they're making a load of money as well. It's big in England, teachers selling to teachers. And we do actually have unions who run platforms. AFT run a platform where um, teachers support teachers. So, well, I mean, of course, we want our unions in this space. And they had the Pond in New Zealand, which was a government-invested platform, which has since fallen over for, for reasons that um, are part of the same mix. Um, I do want to end on a positive note, this particular episode of the series, by talking about open data, open source, and how we can structure the infrastructure of digital education so that it's not collection of student data that's driving it, but the public interest and the public good. And, and we talk about this quite a lot, Neil. We do want to see governments taking responsibility in this area. I love a critique of platform capitalism. And what is the democratic alternative than just watching the run of money in this space? Well, I love the idea that you've actually kind of thought about the sharing resources thing. And there were things like Pond, because, I mean, the problem with something like Teachers Pay Teachers 
is that yeah there's a profit motive there that you know amazon are creaming off money from teachers selling anything it commoditizes you know teachers work it makes teachers individual content creators that are selling to it and, and at the end of the day you get this situation where entrepreneurial teachers who are being encouraged to be entrepreneurial are developing content that not really for their classroom they're developing it to be saleable so the profit motive just kind of screws everything up but you could flip it and have you know teachers sharing resources with other teachers is what teachers have always done that'd be fantastic and the web is set up in a way that we could have have that which is why tim berners lee gets so wound up that this is not his world wide web this wasn't the internet he imagined you know so other internets are possible so yeah i, I love the idea of open data data commons these are these are great ideas we do not have to have the full profit data economy that we talked about earlier and you know we can develop non-proprietary tools and services and platforms that are based around other values. It's all about values, really, and the values might be openness or transparency or common stewardship, rather than individual ownership. Those are all things I can get behind. So there are examples of this. I mean, the Corbyn um, Labour um, admin not administration, but the Corbyn Labour um, election campaign had some really good digital um, kind of. Um, proposals in it um which would have been really interesting to see them come to fruition in in um, the uk in the late 2010s and they were talking about all sorts of really interesting open knowledge networks for education and data commons and national data commons and on open data repositories for things like education which i think have got legs so an open data repository for example if you imagine all the data that's generated about learning and teaching in schools by these platforms if that was somehow shareable on a regional or a national level imagine what you could actually do what the analytical power there to actually see and, and look for patterns and you could do all sorts of really interesting things so that's something that i think we should think about and there are examples of this not particularly great examples but there are examples that have been set up new york city for example has an open data initiative where every piece of open data that's available about relating to new york city you know from tenancy stuff through to libraries through to traffic flows is made openly accessible and the idea is that people can kind of mash the data sets together and do all sorts of interesting stuff with the data finland's got another similar thing a national um i can't speak finnish it looks like avion avion data portal where they, they badge it as all finnish data in one place and i mean you look at it and there's about 60 different education data sets that are not particularly useful but if it was 600 or 6,000 data sets then it could be good now there are problems with all of this First of all, you need a lot of technical expertise to do anything interesting with the data. So as well as making the data available like this, we need data scientists that are kind of community, collective, union-minded. Um, so that might be a, a space for anyone looking to reskill themselves. Data scientists need to be able to work with this. You and I can't do much with 600 open data sets. Um, I, I imagine well, I can't anyway. But I think it, the principle is there and there are some examples. And I really also like this idea of platform cooperatives. So, yeah, platforms are not necessarily inherently evil. There's a really interesting platform cooperative movement, which is all about workers or you know, in, <laughs> communities having common ownership of data. So, I mean, there are some really interesting examples where people can donate their medical data. Um, and then as a collective decide where they give it to, what research projects they give it to, or do they give it to particular health systems? Or they have an option of selling it if they want to, but it's a collective decision. So cooperatives, logics, and platforms coming together is super interesting. And there are some really interesting worker cooperatives 
not in education, but in things like taxi driving or um, home cleaning, where instead of having to sign up to Uber or some other kind of predatory platform, all the taxi drivers in New York can actually sign up to a platform cooperative and sell their rides that way. And they do some really interesting things. That in the cleaning one, for example, in New York, you do not have a picture cleaner. So you cannot only choose white cleaners or you know, cleaners in their teens, which is what tends to happen in some consumers. It's it's complete. So the workers work out exactly how they want to run it, the rates that they set and the and the hours they have to work. And it's very much run by workers, which is a really interesting logic to, to how we might have platforms. So all of that, I think, is great. And we can we could do that. Um, I say we, not me, because I haven't got the technical expertise, but yeah, we could do it. But at the very least, at, at the very least, I think actually working out how we can get the data generated in public schools to be used to improve public education should be something we're aiming for. It would require governments and regulators to step up. Technically, the one thing it really needs are some form of nationally enforced standards for data interoperability. Now, you talk to anyone in the data world and they always say that all of these different education data sets don't fit together. They don't talk to each other. They're not set up in a way where they're compatible. And interoperability is a massive, massive problem. So you need just some form of standards that says if you're generating data about teaching in a school, the data have to look like this, 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 and this. And then you can mash these things together and then we get this power of, of open data. Um, and then just finally, if, I, if I'm on the role of governments being intervening, you also really do need national in, in oversight over which digital technologies are being implemented in schools in terms of their compliance with relevant data regulation. So we're talking about fundamentally reimagining how education systems run. We're re-empowering the state, which is good in some ways, but also has disadvantages, and particularly in some places. Um, you know, you say these things to people in Vietnam and they just like, you don't let the state, the state is not, and you don't want anywhere near that. So this is a very kind of Australian, UK, you know, European perspective where we trust our state. I'm, I'm imagining an ideal state that works in our best interests. So that's possibly something else we need to change as well. So there's a lot of work to be done if any of that's going to come to fruition. But as I said before, you've got to imagine these alternate futures and try and work towards them. Why not? Why not think big? We do not have to have the type of technology that we have. We agree with you, Neil, and we're in the same business. So we do want to make sure that we've got opportunities and options available for governments. Um, I do think that open data is going to have more legs than Boris Johnson, to go back to your example, because um, there was a lot of change that happened in that short period of time. But the, the open data argument will run and run. On your tech industry issue, my oldest son works there. He reckons we need to be organizing more in the tech industry. And, and I think that there is a big, important bit of work there across the union movement about how we can make that happen because there are whole big parts of the tech industry that are very under-supported by unions. And that will be a topic for our next series. So I'm excited that you brought it up already. I'm going to finish with a personal question. And we always have a flavor to a set of questions. So we've had quite a few numbers on COVID here. So my personal question is, what was your favorite film or TV series that you watched on digital platforms, Netflix or whichever one you want to choose during COVID? So I'm a complete contrarian. I don't have a television and um, all the rest of it. So as you can imagine, but I did get sucked into um, YouTube uh, so I was on YouTube looking around and I'm actually English. So I, I used to live in England. Now I live in Australia. 
So I got sucked into, first of all, Bob Ross, um, you know, the, the painting guy, which is just fantastic. So I watched that all. Um, and then I got massively sucked into Salvage Hunters, which we don't get over here and I'd never even heard of. But um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's this little kind of Welsh guy that goes around buying antiques, which was absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, I'd say Salvage Hunters and Bob Ross got me through COVID or, or maybe didn't, maybe pushed me over the edge. But um, it was very interesting how actually I don't, you know, I can sit here and say I didn't have a television, but I was watching loads and loads of television on YouTube. So, yeah, thank God for everyone that's kind of rips it and streams it and shoves it up there. Uh, yeah, really, really pleased that got me through COVID. YouTube is owned by Google, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was part of the machine. So what, what can you do? I knew you were going to say that about not having a TV, but I didn't expect the YouTube switch. So um, thanks for that. Um, really, um, really great opening set there, Neil. And we will be back to talk to you again on the labour issue at another time. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Neil. Looking forward to the next episode of this EdTech series, Teasing the Tech. Stay tuned. And to get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Ed Voices on your favorite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. <laughs>